been talking about the pros and cons of language and words and the kind of delusions you can create for yourself through words and prisons that are just completely created by your own language uh, that everyone is doing all the time. And we were talking about practices that kind of try and get you over that, round that, through that. Um, the problems created by language. And it's a difficult thing to talk about, obviously, because we're using language to talk about it. And a lot of the people who mention, who bring up the problems associated with language and over-the-top rationality tend to try and throw it all away and forget about language and uh, just get back in the body and their feelings and sensations and you can throw away all that silly intellect stuff of the West and get back to the real world or whatever, which I'm against that too. So we, what's interesting to me is trying to find a balance of using language and words in a more... Uh, accurate, useful way, uh, but without throwing them out because you need them. We're humans, we use concepts all the time. But the problem is where everyone is possessed by their concepts and, as I say, creating prisons for themselves in their concepts uh, a lot of the time. But there are ways to get around. There are practices you can get around this, both Eastern and Western, and I'm sure plenty more. And you, the paradox, I suppose, would be is you can... There are ways to use language in order to transcend language. And that's what uh, you want to talk about, but the Zen koans, <clears throat> which I don't know a lot about. I know a little bit, but not much. Mm. And there are, I'd like to, well, you said you had a practice related to this, so it'd be interesting to hear that, and then we could maybe compare it to some other methods that are similar Yeah. Um, from other traditions, because in the last podcast we were talking about uh, should you just stick to one tradition and do all the practices in that tradition and take on all the beliefs associated with that tradition? Mm. Or should you, uh, or can you pick and mix different practices from different traditions and use them in your own way? Yeah. So I think this, if we talk about it like this, we're kind of giving an example of what we mean by not simply picking and mixing from traditions, but also not just sticking to one tradition and in some way trying to transform it into or trying to integrate it into a way to make sense to us as Western people. Hmm. So over to you, what's, what's the yeah. core, the <laughs> method, the technique you were talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, of course it, it gets confusing because, um, with, within tradition, there are further traditions. So <laughs> within schools, there are all sorts of schools, which makes it schools within schools, schools within, within schools. schools. It's, it's schools all the way down. Um, which, you know, it's funny. Well, I don't think we discussed that, but it is a funny element of, you know, tradition because everyone's saying, oh, it's a tradition and, you know, it was passed down by Jesus. But, you know, there's like hundreds of interpretations, you know, so you've got to really makes you think. But I, I guess maybe a good place to start would be to maybe just give an overview of, of Zen, um, particularly the traditional overview, because it's kind of where they come from, I guess. Maybe people don't really know about it. Um, so, so I guess Zen and Koan, so Koan, Koan's are paradoxical, uh, nonsense statements and they're often seen as riddles. I, I think that's incorrect. They're not riddles. Um, and we'll get into what they kind of are or what I think they are, but I, I guess Zen itself is kind of like a, a non-metaphysical I think I, I described it as an anti-rationalist um, system. And really what it's designed to do 
is to give the practitioner uh, an awakening experience. That's really the whole point of Buddhism in general. But Zen, you know, Zen's a bit different in the way it views awakening to other forms of Buddhism, particularly Buddhism like Theravada or something a bit more traditional, which has more of the Superman view of being enlightened, whereas Zen is a bit more down to earth about awakening experiences, which has always appealed to me. But um, the desired state from Zen practice is Kensho, which is a Japanese word for enlightenment or having an awakening experience. And so Zen practices ever since you had Bodhidharma and, you know, the semi-mythical um, first patriarch of Zen who brought it to China, then it went to Japan. Um, it's always had this, this anti-metaphysical bent, because if you read stories about him, that's the way he is. He's always, um, and, and actually, if you re read his stories, particularly there's a story about a, a student wanting to become enlightened and i forget how it goes exactly but he offers to uh cut his arm off um so yeah i, I actually I'll, I'll get that i'll i'll post it because it's worth uh it's worth reading because it is kind of gives you an idea of what koans are kind of aimed aimed at that kind of non-rational uh momentary access uh to awakening um so Zen is basically, traditionally, there are two main schools, two, two main streams of Zen, and they both had their own uh, bents. So the main one these days, anyway, is Soto, the Soto lineage. Um, I, I'd say, so that's a lineage I sort of trained in. It's, it's more ritualistic. Uh, it's more traditional, like a lot of the, the priests have robes and all that kind of stuff. It's quite ritualized. Um, uh, and the other one, um, is Rinzai, which I guess you could say is, it's not strictly true, but, uh, it's, it's more kind of loose, loosely religious, and it's got more of a philosophical bent, I would say. And Rinzai was the one actually that sort of came to the West first, interestingly enough. Uh, so the Soto school uh, emphasizes uh, Zazen meditation or sitting sitting meditation, which is called uh, Shikatanza meditation. And that particularly, and you'll like this, actually, it, it emphasizes posture above all else, posture and breathing and maintaining that uh, not rigid posture, but but putting a lot of emphasis on maintaining that, that position that the Zen monks are famous for because they believe that is the key to everything. And they, and they don't really put a lot of emphasis on really telling you what to do. <laughs> so people might say, okay, count your breath to 15, uh, count, you know, and then just do it all over again and just keep doing that. But other than that, there's actually not a whole lot of instruction. So it's more focusing on the posture and the form of the meditator. And that, that really appeals to me uh, for obvious reasons. And probably would to you as well. I'd actually like to get your opinion on their postural advice sometime, actually. I think that'd be interesting. Um, I don't know much about it um, yeah, to comment yeah. now, but I, I, so is the idea whether you stay by staying still long enough, you start to shut down all this silly chatter in your head and, and things start to happen. I, and if you can just maintain the discipline, then long enough 
then that will happen. I would say, I would say it, yeah, sort of, but I, and it probably relates to the Cohen, what we're going to talk about, but it's, it puts you in a state of, well, non-drowsiness, first of all, but also the ability to be coherent and aware but relaxed. So relying on gravity and center of gravity is very important because actually when you're in that position, there should be very little effort that you're putting into it. Should so be. they're staying vertical when they not, sit. I wouldn't say also, it's vertical. But there's also walking, isn't there? Uh, there is walking, yeah. Yeah, but it's particularly the posture. Yeah. So the, the walking is in time with breathing. That's what, so it's got a very specific time around how you're breathing, the breathing rhythm. But sitting... So, so the head is meant to be hanging slightly forward and relaxed and the back, not military straight, but in the middle of military, you know, military arched and slouched over somewhere in the middle. Right. But I've never had anyone who's been able to explain it to me perfectly. Uh, anyway. I'll need to look, I'll look at it properly and I'll, yeah. um, I'll, I'll see what I think. The, the one thing that just comes to mind there, though, is that people kind of miss because they're trying to get to the meditation part is the conscious self-control discipline part of making yourself sit down against mm. your feelings and mm-hmm. staying still. Yeah. That's huge. It's not like that. everyone treats that as the, or you just have to get used to it. To, you know, you try to get that out of the way and then to get to the good stuff. To me, the good stuff is the taking that kind of conscious control over yourself, over your own physiology. And then obviously once you get to the walking and timing it with the breathing and stuff, these are not things that are happening. You're making happen. And as soon as you try and want something, try and make something new happen, you're going to resist it and dislike it and try and go back to your old way. It's just, uh, you know, homeostasis, I suppose it is. Um, So a huge amount of the benefit comes from that before you've even got to the rest of it, I think. For sure. Um, So that's so, so, so just one last thing is you, so even though that's just sitting, you're controlling yourself, you're actually using language and words in your mind to do this. You're telling yourself to sit down and do this. You're telling yourself, no, I'm not going to finish yet. I have more to do. You know, maybe the guy's coming behind you and cracking you in the head. <laughs> that would help. Yeah. But, um, you know, otherwise you're telling yourself to do these things. You're having to instruct yourself in words and then do the thing that the words said, uh, obey your commands, even though your feelings don't want to obey them anymore. Maybe for a long time, maybe for a huge amount of time you're, you're resisting. Um, whereas the other type of Zen is more starting with the words. Mm. So like you're, then you're using the words to, to do these things. So both forms to me sound like they're using language in different ways, but it's just not so obvious for the sitting down one. Yeah. It's not obvious and it seems deceptively simple. It's actually extremely difficult. I remember when I first started, as you say, struggling against like every fiber in your body, not wanting to do it. But, but also just trying to get the position right is like incredibly difficult. It's not easy. Like you're constantly adjusting um, and it takes, you know, it can take many, many, many months of doing it fairly regularly to be able to get in a good position, good comfortable position where you're well supported by your spine and you're not swaying around and your center of gravity is pretty, pretty bang on. Take takes a while. Uh, you know, I've seen some people who, just always tell me that they're just always uncomfortable and they've just never been able to nail that spot. Um, and then you look at a master, uh, particularly a, a Japanese master, and you know, their posture looks impeccable and they're just able to sit there just completely still, 
you know it's incredible actually to watch it's quite quite an incredible feat of self-control um but there is there is that language element for sure um i've never i don't think just thinking back i don't think i've ever explicitly stated like you need to sit up or anything like that but i you do notice it everything becomes extremely apparent uh, all the time um it will happen is, to you because you start feeling uncomfortable and the little voices in your head, even if you don't clear it clearly, you're still sure. thinking in words kind of semi-consciously. A little voice will be, maybe I should just get up now. Yeah. Oh, this is dangerous. I'm going to hurt myself. I need to get up. You know, the, the little stories will start. Yeah, totally. Uh, so yeah. you're like, and then you're responding to those emotionally and, and in other ways. Or until now you go out, sets a chain of thought. You know, anyone who's tried to meditate will know this. You're thinking and then feeling, you'll see how interactive your fid- physical fidgeting is with mental mind wandering. You know, you can't keep your mind fixed on the thing. You can't even remember to count to 10. You get distracted, you know, and then you're fidgeting, you're moving, then you you forget what you're thinking about. And then this is one of the big aha for me years ago was the, holy shit, the fidgeting, what I thought was physical fidgeting is just the other side of the coin of the mm. mind-wandering, monkey mind, whatever it is people call it. Yeah. Um, just not being able to keep it on one thing that you're you're you have chosen to do. And then you just can't do it. And then back to what we were talking about before, you're just deluding yourself that you have some kind of freedom as a human being and you're just being bounced around by all these reactions. Totally. So like the crucible of sitting down, trying to keep yourself still and to keep your mind on one thing shows you that you're just not what you thought you were. Um, Which again is another illusion made by language because, you know, animals aren't walking around thinking about how free they are. They're just (laughs) doing what they do. Mm. Um, We, you know, have words as a tool the animals don't have and there is kind of go out of control for a lot of people hence the reason that people are even doing any practices or invented any practices hmm. so anyway back to back to uh, Zen. yeah no all good points um you really notice the games you play with yourself it's incredible particularly when you do it over a, a you know 10 days or something you do it you know a 10 day intensive retreat just you know you can have games that span for days and you'll just make things up and you'll sit there and you'll just be thinking of ways to get through it. Just anything but sitting there in the moment with yourself. Like you'll just try, not not that you're even trying, that's the weird part about it, is just you have all this stuff that just comes up out of you. You're not in control of any of this. It's just happening. Which is why, you know, people always argue with me about like, oh, I'm in control. I've got free will. I've got all this stuff. And it's like, well, you just sit down for 20 minutes and try and sit there and tell me, tell me how much free will you got, really. Like, and tell me that all these thoughts are like yours, that you're directing everything. It's nonsense. The whole thing is rubbish. Anyway, moving on. So, so uh, you can get yeah. the same insight from from trying to write something. Yeah, you, know, how, how <laughs> you can. Because yeah. can you stay writing them on the one thing? Yeah. Uh, and you'll notice all of these things. You're fidgeting. You find yourself up doing something. You you have an important thing to write. Then the next minute, you suddenly find yourself cleaning your room or something that you had no <laughs> intentions of doing. But any yeah. kind of excuse, you know. Yeah. If you want to get something, if you want to get your house tidy, by the way, the trick is just to give yourself something really important to do. You'll just find yourself cleaning <laughs> around you instead of doing what it is yeah. you need to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so like we're doing these things all. That's like obvious, but we're doing little things like that in our mind as well. You're little kind of mental house clearing where you have the thought about something and you creates a little bit of tension so you immediately 
uh, start thinking about this other thing that distracts you from that thing. And, but you think you've chosen to think about this, but really it's just a reaction. Hmm. Uh, you know, all these defense mechanisms or, or whatever, yeah. uh, to escape your own feelings of tension or whatever. So then when you're going to sit down and try and stay still, all of these things are going to be, you're going to see them more clearly, but also they're going to get worse, especially at the start. Absolutely. You know, you got these guys, uh, online that are you know they're like oh meditation's demons man you know like those dudes and i'm um, like you know if if you think if if you went crazy just from sitting there and watching yourself for a couple of days you know that's it's not the meditation that's doing that to you <laughs> it's yeah, yeah you that's have what, bigger, you have bigger that's, problems that's what's lurking underneath uh anyway yeah so so that's um you know in general this this soto school uh, it's it's primarily focused on you know sitting meditation and they don't do much else they do a bit of ritual you know chanting of sutras and stuff like that but it's it's quite minimal then of course you have chores and things like this where you you're meant to maintain that mindfulness throughout your day if you live in a monastery or if you're an intensive uh, session um, yeah just it's you're meant to be mindful all the time so so moving on um, oh and just, just by the way, while I remember, this is this is what got me onto the breathing thing that I do now is actually from really is just Zen breathing, um, and I got interested in it because I noticed during one uh, intensive retreat that my, my I had this radical shift in my breathing towards the end of it. It was a it was a long one. It went for ten days, and it, you know it was about ten hours a day meditation. And towards the end, all of a sudden, my abdominal just uh, opened up like nothing I'd ever experienced, my abdominal muscles. And I just had this little, uh, it's like this little second set of lungs or something down there. It was really an unusual experience. And it was just, uh, I wouldn't say robotic, but it was, it was very automatic and it, it required almost no effort. I was just sitting there watching this thing happen. And I'm like, what is this? Uh, I've never, like, and I've done yoga and stuff, but I'd never bre uh, breathed in this way before. Like, I'm, I'm just, I was quite surprised by, by the experience. Uh, so I asked, um, asked the master at the time, and he's like, oh, well, that's, uh, that's your hara. But he, he couldn't tell me much more about it. So that, that's actually what sent me on an odyssey of uh, developing all this stuff. But that's, that's the other part of sitting meditation, of course, is abdominal breathing, which is often overlooked. People don't often talk about it, but it is absolutely critical. It's a critical part of sitting meditation and Zen. Um, but anyway, we can talk about that some other time, uh, maybe. So, so the other uh, school is Rinzai. Uh, and Rinzai is probably less of a thing in Japan. Um, you know, it's funny. As, as far as I know, these traditions always had... Not little battles, but they were kind of, you know, talking shit about each other, kind of slagging each other off. It's kind of maybe a little bit like the Nietzscheans online and the Christians are kind of like just having these little, little snipes at one another. And um, <clears throat> uh, basically, um, towards probably the beginning of last century, um, Soto kind of started leading the way. But through Japanese history, they had this this changing of the guard a couple of times and, you know, one school became prevalent, the other one kind of waned away. 
But probably in general, I'd say that probably what you find in Japan and probably in the West a bit more these days is Soto, even though Rinzai was the first type of Zen that that, that made its way out of Japan. But having said that, Western schools, in my experience, kind of mix all this stuff up anyway. It's very, I, I wouldn't call Western Zen all that pure, at least what I've come across isn't, which is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. So yeah, the Rinzai school is the one with koans. So um, they have a less ritualistic approach, more philosophical, um, and probably in terms of approaches to enlightenment or, or approaches to Kensho, they have a, a more direct approach. This is called the direct approach. And it's called the direct approach because they use koans, which are these paradoxical, nonsensical, uh, nonsense statements that essentially the master gives to the student and the student's meant to reflect on the koan and that's meant to lead to a, you know, a, an awakening experience. Um, so there's, there's a bit of contention over the use of these things, um, as I said, you know, during the the golden age of Zen in Japan, which was I think from like the 700s to 1000s or something like that, um, I, I don't think it got used all that much. It got used a little bit, and then it came into vogue. And then, anyways, a long history. But there are a lot of stories of masters through the ages using these nonsensical statements uh, during or sorry after their awakening experiences uh, in order to describe their awakening experiences which is why they don't make any sense because these are you know essentially nonverbal um, experiences that they're trying to relate so traditionally what would happen is the master would um, give the student a koan which again is not a riddle. People need to get that out of their head. It's it's not something you're meant to reason out or try to figure out. And then the student would go away into the meditation hall. He'd, he'd get into seated meditation and then he'd use that as an object of focus, um, essentially. And that's um, what it was meant to do. It was, it was meant to induce an awakening experience. And then the student would go back to the master and he would give his explanation you know his his reasoning which is pretty funny i don't know how that conversation would go to be honest because i don't know how you would just you know give an answer to something like that but that's what happened and then then the master would um essentially say well no you're still a dickhead fuck off or you know congratulations uh you've you've had an awakening experience um so just quickly on koans and kind of how they work um so I'm just going to say this straight out that I have never been given one by a master. So I, I have used them fairly regularly in the last five years. Um, and the way that I use them was this, this uh, guy online, this uh, Zen master that basically explained how you use them. Um, so that's the way I did it. So I got a couple of books and I started you know, using them uh, as best as I could basically figure out how to do it. But in a way, I feel like I probably missed something because you're definitely meant to have the master involved because the master is a guy that looks at you and says, you know, I know, I know what's going to fuck with this guy and then gives you something specific for your uh, character, I guess, that he knows is going to work for you or trigger you or whatever. 
So, so there is that element that I've missed. So I'm only talking from my uh, personal experience and trying to use it on my own that I, I never had a master that could deliver it because the people I worked with don't use them. So, so in my uh, experience, uh, when you um, have a koan, so in my case, I read it. And what I would do is I'd um, have the statement in my mind and I, I'd sit there and I would uh, kind of be in Zazen. I'd be in a fairly relaxed state. And what they say to do is to not uh, try to reason it out, not try to really do anything except to focus on it and to kind of, I guess the best way to describe it is to, to lean, lean into it and just become receptive to whatever happens. That's what you're meant to do. And at no point are you meant to try to reason it through. You're not meant to think of an answer because what it's trying to induce is kind of like an aha uh, moment, like an awakening, the aha moment where it, it makes sense, but it's going to make non-rational sense. It's not going to make sense to you because the statement itself is, it's not rational in the sense that you know, you can just go away and reason it out with mathematics or something like that. Um, so, so the reason I believe that they do it this way, and I, I've been thinking about it a little bit, just getting prepared for this show, I guess, um, is <clears throat> um, so in a, in a meditative state, when, when you're in it, you, I think you require like definitely an attitude of receptivity. Meditation for me is just being ultimately receptive all the time because you're trying to notice everything spontaneously arising within your field of awareness all the time. And the way that you do that is by becoming receptive, which is the posturing that you take when you receive the koan. And when you're in that position of receptivity and you have the koan and you're focusing on the koan and you're repeating it a couple of times gently in your mind, just reminding yourself of it, in a way you're kind of, let's say you're enticing an answer. I guess you could say you're kind of like inviting the answer. I don't think they're, they're the right ways to say it quite, but you are in a state of receptivity. And you have the koan in your mind. And I guess in this practice, because it's not the statement that's incurring the awakening itself. It's, it's some mechanism to do with holding the nonsensical statement in your head. And I think that the koan uh, encourages focus. And it makes you extend your awareness to focus as wide as you can in the sense that you're casting your awareness as wide uh, as you possibly can in that meditation. And, you've, and you do this through a state of, of, of as much openness as you can muster to everything that's happening. And in a way, I can, I can see why using a word would be considered something that would induce this very efficiently and very quickly in a student. Whereas with the Soto method, just sitting there, 
you could probably find yourself confused for a very long time before you really started to figure out what you were actually doing. So in a way, I think there's probably advantages to, to koan practice if it was done properly. Um, but, but I hope that kind of gives you maybe a general idea of how it's used traditionally. Once you have an awakening experience, so traditionally, if you had the awakening experience, so, so all of a sudden you've had that aha moment, the koan has made sense, even though you didn't answer it as such, but it made sense to you and it induced an experience. Then you would go uh, speak to your master. And I think this process is called uh, Sanzen, Sazen, Sanzen, something like that. And you go and give, give him your answer. And then he'd say, okay, great. You, you know, you, you're awakened. Um, well done. And then he'd give you like a whole book of more koans. And then you go away and study even more of them. And the reason you do that is because Zen practitioners don't consider awakening like the Buddha in the Buddhist sense where, oh, I'm awakened. It's all over. Everything's finished. I'm done. I don't need to do any more work. I'm already amazing. You know, everyone go fuck yourselves. I'm enlightened because that's, that's not, that's not actually how they view it. So they're of the opinion though. They probably think that can happen, but they're of the opinion that actually you have an initial awakening, which is quite transient. So it lasts for a couple of minutes, a couple of hours. It could last for even a couple of weeks. Who knows, maybe months for some people. But eventually, it's going to go away. And in koan practice, I think they acknowledge this because what they do is they give you a bunch of koans that you go away with as a student afterwards, and you keep doing it. So the reason you keep doing it is because they recognize that the awakening event itself is not stable yet. And the way you stabilize it is by continuously doing it. Um, and I, I was speaking about it before, the Tibetan lineage that I was talking about, how they have pointing exercises. So you, you have the glimpse that is induced by the pointing. But then after that, that's just the beginning of the work. After that, then the monk goes away and he has to stabilize that non-dual frame of mind or the collapse of the subject object being the goal, then they have to go away and do the work afterwards. Koan practice is actually like that. It's quite similar, eerily similar. Whereas, whereas the Soto school of just the Zazen, it doesn't, doesn't have that so much. Um, it's definitely a koan practice thing. How they, they go away and stabilize the experience afterwards. Um, just a word on that quickly. So, so in Zen, uh, what they mean by awakening as well, because it's a little bit different. So as I was saying, it, usually Zen teachers don't believe that you're fully cooked after your first um, awakening event. Like they consider that kind of just like a usually just, you know, a first awakening. And this comports with my experience, which is why I like the Zen path more than many others. So um, they consider that actually the initial awakening uh, experience can lead to many problems. So it can lead to um, egotism, like uh, it can lead to all sorts of issues. It can lead to the student thinking he's some sort of guru and going ar around and confusing people. Um, they still consider that 
the person is not fully developed yet, which is pretty important. Um, so the, it's it's funny because we were talking about this last week that the the awakening experience itself is not enough to change the personality totally. Like it doesn't burn away what you are necessarily, which is which is an interesting element of the whole thing. But this this experience is similar to other, I guess, Buddhist descriptions of awakening. So so the Japanese call it Kensho. And uh, effectively, what that um, refers to is the same thing as most other um, awakenings refer to as the collapse of the subject-object duality. And the other thing, of course, is the uh, autobiographical self, which is what I call it. But but the feeling of selflessness falls away. It always has those two features. Um, and in that state, I think, as I was saying before, in my experience, it's, it's a state of expansiveness, um, less self-awareness, not more self-awareness, but less self-awareness, which is an important point of demarcation that I have with uh, many people. And those experiences are called Kensho. Um, and there are different gradations of, of Kensho. There's different kind of levels or grades, which I'm not too well read on. I don't really know much about it. But, but these experiences are not all made alike. And I think that ties in with the, the level of the awakening that the student has, how mature they are, and how long they've been meditating and how well they've managed to stabilize this experience. So yeah, just uh, that, that's essentially how koans work. So when I use them, I will sit there, I'll have a statement and uh, I'll just be in Zazen, just normal Zazen. And I'll just repeat the statement to myself gently, just try to focus on it uh, for a while. And uh, basically, just go on with life. <laughs> Effectively, that's all that happens. And then when I do my meditation in the afternoon, I do the same thing. I just go on with life. I don't think about it. Oh, sorry, I think about it during the meditation. After the meditation, I don't think about it. I just do whatever I've got to do. A interesting thing about all the koan stories, of course, is that most koans come from masters when they had um, a moment of awakening they made up some statement that's where most koans come from so so most of these stories when you read them that you know he they're rarely in meditation when they have the awakening moment it's usually just when they're like chopping wood or i don't know fetching water or even stubbing their toe or something like that that's when they have the awakening experience and the koan makes sense so, so in my experience, there's been something similar. So I, I very rarely have any epiphany when I'm sitting in seated meditation with, with koan practice. Any uh, flash moment or intuition, whatever you want to call it, intuition kind of downplays it a bit, but maybe that's a good way to describe it, has, has only been when I've just been out and about doing something. Like I've had... Um, like all of a sudden, I've, I've had the feeling that the statement makes sense. Like in the middle of boxing training, once I had that happen. It, it wasn't like, you know, I was I was floored on the ground and everything, you know, 
turn into fucking rainbows and energy surged out of my ears or something. But I just had the oomph moment, you know, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, and all of a sudden, like the, the statement itself made sense. And that could be like, you know, I forget at the time, but I think it was quite a, quite a while later. It was maybe a couple of weeks or maybe even a few months later. Anyway, it was, it was a long time after I'd started doing the practice. And of course, you know, students can struggle with these statements for many years. There's, there's stories of people like for decades not doing the same koan just because they just thought they were never getting it and it just wasn't coming to them. Then, it, you know, it, it's funny. It always seems to be at that moment when they give up, that's when something happens and they, they have their epiphany. So I hope that's, um, that's given you a bit of a insight into how it works. Um, let me know if there's anything I've missed. I've tried to be as complete as I can because it is still um, essentially quite a mysterious practice. It's, um, it's not easy to elucidate just by its very nature, right? Like no, nothing in Zen is particularly being an, you know, a non-metaphysical practice. And um, just going through these, these other more modern koans, it seems as if it's similar, but it's not quite the same thing. Can you give an example yeah. of a koan that you've used that's useful to you that that um, people can think about? Yeah, sure. Well, well, the famous one, the the best one, I think is is the best one, is mu. <laughs> that's it. Just M U, which is uh, a Japanese word, and um, it it is it was I think the origin of it is is like um, a student asked a Zen master, "Can dogs become enlightened?" And that was his answer, "Moo," which is I think in Japanese like a dog's bark or something like that. That's the sound they make. Reading about is the you know what is the sound of one hand clapping or sure. maybe without clapping it's what a famous the sound one. Of one hand what's it's just what's That's, the sound um, of one hand
yeah, a couple of comments on it is mm. the the difference between the two Zen schools. Then it sounds like to me in relation to language is the just sitting practice, um, where you can just get lost in words in your head for a long, long time. Even though you might be sitting still, you're just lost in words in your head a long, long time playing games for yourself. Um, in the beginning, versus the you know the koan school, where they're using the koans, is that it the koan school makes the problems with language explicit right at the start. You're you're using a, like a nonsense statement, and then using that to you know transcend words or and you know overcome the problems with words indirectly or however it works. Whereas the setting school, you're just kind of left to your own devices and eventually over time you would overcome the words, but you don't deal with the problem in language explicitly at the start. That's one difference it seems to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, the other thing is the there seems to be, the koan itself seems to be, you're saying it makes sense to you but you know you're not trying to figure it out. It's not like a, it's not a puzzle to be solved. No. There's no like solution to it. No. Um. But but there is a way it makes sense after you you have an aha moment and then it makes sense after. It's like you, and if somebody can get stuck in one cone for a long long time and not get and not get anywhere with it, it's because it sounds like the person is trapped within the system of that koan or within the system of words and you need to get outside of that system of words in order to understand it. Hmm. Sort of like um, a Godel's incompleteness theorem, but for statements. Yeah. So like within that statement, it just can't make sense. So you have to somehow, you have to get into the, make yourself receptive so that your mind can then go past that. But you trying to go past that will not go past it. So it's that kind of it has to you're setting up the conditions and then allowing some kind of other natural awareness process to take place mm. rather than forcing it. Yeah. Um the the so like it brings to mind the purpose of language is to limit things. You know, like a definition is you're making you're giving some event or objects a specific word and you're saying these this refers to this set of things but not these other things you know you're you're cutting away things and then leaving something that the word is to represent it's always to make thing things smaller to cut up the whole world into pieces that's what you're doing with words all the time and if you cut them up and you get smaller and smaller pieces you can get lost in amongst the pieces and not see how it relates to the whole or or how they came from the whole you've sliced the pie up you've forgotten the pie um so it seems like in the koan, you're maybe it's a way for uh, going back to the whole again. So you've you've people tend to be lost in the parts, lost in the words, getting triggered by certain words, um, whole set of emotional reactions based on certain words. But then once you, with the koan method, even though you're using nonsense statements, you are then getting to see okay, these are just you're kind of detaching yourself from the the idea of words. And um, opening up into another awareness or type of awareness hmm. that uh, takes you beyond the words, and then you would have to keep doing that because otherwise you'll just slip into the old habits. And even if you've had a kind of initial awakening, you still there's still more to do. You're not like Dan, <laughs> like, no. like your statement. Yeah. I'm enlightened. Fuck you. <laughs> That's um, what some people that do. That may not be a yeah. maybe a legitimate response to it. I mean, you know, some people just disappear <laughs> into the woods or whatever after yeah. it. Or yeah. um, you know, some people, you know, there's like 
they just disappear. You know, they're not interested in helping people. But anyway, the uh, so like as far as the the Zen koan method is, is it really ties in well with what we were talking about with Ian McGilchrist's book about the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere mm. and the brain. Mm-hmm. It seems like if you were going to put it in that language, a koan is designed to, uh, because the person's probably trapped in left hemisphere models of reality, models of their self, uh, they think they understand it. They're giving them something that can't make sense within that, and you're forced to flip to a right hemisphere dominant way of viewing to get out of it. And if you can't get yourself out of that, you'll just go round and round circles trapped in words. And this is what I meant at the beginning about you create prisons for yourself from language. And you you restrict things you can do, things you can think based on words and concepts and ideas you have in your mind that some of them aren't real. Hmm. They don't even refer to real things. Some of them are real, but you, you know, they, they do refer to real structures in the world but you don't need to relate to them in the same way that, that you're restricting yourself based on the stories that you're telling yourself for the concepts you hold. Um, so like something has been interesting to me is looking at other, other ways of using language, which can get you out of the prisons. Um, in addition to the Zen koans, because there's a few people have, have come up with other techniques as well. And there's some other traditions of similar things. Hmm. So, for example, Sufism, you know, the teaching stories about Mullah Najruddin is kind of similar to koans. Hmm. I'm not saying it's the same thing, but it seems to be similar. Where you, there's a story and they're usually funny, but there's like kind of nonsense ending, or it's like a paradox or it doesn't really make sense. Uh, and it's to kind of train you in that way of thinking beyond the structure. So, just as an example, there's one where he goes, Mullah Nasruddin goes into a shop and he says to the owner of the shop, uh, did you see, Did you just see me come in here? And the guy says, yeah, of course. He goes, have you ever seen me before? He goes, no, I've never seen you before. Ah, well then how do you know it's me? <laughs> yeah. So like, obviously that just sounds like a stupid play in words, but yeah. if you think about it, it's what it's doing is, well, it's doing several things, but one of the things it's doing is you're, it's taking the structure of what, like just by using the words, you're already closing in what it means and creating this tight little system. And then it's like breaking you out of it because what, you know, like it, that doesn't, that's not where it, the structure was heading. Hmm. That's not where it was going. That doesn't make sense. And you just kind of have a sort of things like that. Give me a kind of popping sensation. It's hard yeah. to describe. It's yeah, not yeah. in our heart. It's more like a popping. I go, uh, what? Yeah. Um, which is the point. Yeah. So like if you're, and I read somewhere about the Sufi stories that you're meant, the Mullah and Nasruddin stories, you're meant to study a few in a row together. So that'd be similar to Mm. uh, getting a book of koans and doing more. And you just kind of, it's just breaking free of the structures, transcending the structure really is what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The Mullah and Nasruddin ones are to be, are comedy. Usually like to be, they're funny in some way. Usually the koans and koans seem to be just like total nonsense. That seems to be their angle. Um, there, there would be other ways too that people can do this. Uh, and um, it's just like words, words, words. Mm. You know, yeah. Um, so, so there's just on that shop one. So, so a lot of this, I think, um, 
work, ultimately the experience that it generates seems to me to always relate in some way to the continuity of the self. Um, and I'm big on this, particularly in meditation. I think that that's really kind of what's one of the big parts of it, the experience. So, so it almost sounds like the guy that was walking into the, what was it, a cafe or something? A tea shop or whatever it was? The sorry, Yeah, I think it's just, a, it's just a shop, yeah. Right. Yeah, it sounds like he's realized on some level that the continuity of his self is false and that was his way of expressing that to the uh shopkeeper it's like i'm not i'm not the same person that's that's in <laughs> like right yeah, now and it's also implying yesterday. that you know like yeah. in the left brain kind of thing that you're you you instantly create a fixed model of something as soon as you see it and now it's in a category right. and then it's kind of playing with the the changing continuous process versus some fixed object that's mm. static outside of time yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you know it's like catching you in the process of starting to think about things in the fixed way already yeah so, so another good good one sorry i just remembered now is is what is the color of wind that was the one i, I used to like using quite a bit and you just sit there and, and you're just in a state of zen you just repeat it to yourself and, and focus on it it's all you do it's really not much more to it. So you just you would say, "What is the color of wind? What is the color of wind? What is the color of wind?" And I just focus on it. Let the let the statement uh, percolate, I guess, and then uh, get up, get on with your day, do it again in the afternoon. It's literally what it is. That's it. Uh, at least on your own. Not with a master. I'm sure it's different. But uh, one interesting thing is I came across a study on um, Japanese monks in the 1970s in Japan that uh, underwent some brain studies, um, which is fascinating. So, so this was, um, they took practitioners of two schools, Soto and Enrinzai, and they basically measured their brain waves while they were in states of meditation or Zazen. And they broke it up as per the, um, you know, the experience of the monk, how long they've been meditating before, you know, all the, all these different data sets and, and groups. And overall, what they found was, um, so when, the Zen practitioners started meditation. They were they had beta waves, which are now associated with tension and waking consciousness. Is tends to be when beta waves are predominant, um, and almost instantly they would go into an alpha wave state. So this is, I think, the other night I I posted um, some of my own readings. That were alpha wave states. <clears throat> if people remember that or not, but those those alpha waves of different um, different types, slightly with different amplitudes, admittedly, but all alpha wave states. <clears throat> and they, um, some of the older monks, then went from alpha waves into theta waves, and theta waves are kind of what you have while you're sleeping. Um, but these guys obviously weren't sleeping. They had their eyes open because in Zen meditation, you meant to have your eyes open. 
And, you know, they obviously were up straight and very much aware of themselves. Um, so, so that's interesting. So it's, and I guess not unexpected that that would be the case. But um, what they noticed with the Koan practitioners, because they got the Koan practitioners as well, is they measured their brain waves. So with the inexperienced guys, their brain waves were just very stressed looking. So they had lots of um, low amplitude beta waves. Like it just it didn't look like they were having a particularly good time. That very high paced uh, respirational patterns. So they were breathing quite high and their um, skin response. So I've actually got a galvanic skin response unit here that I've been experimenting with. So I kind of know what they're getting at, but their skin response um, indicated fairly high levels of stress as well. So in, in a fairly stressed state. Um, <clears throat> these were the Koan monks, by the way. Um, however, what they noticed was with the older monks, when they were given a Koan, pretty much the opposite was the case. Um, and what was super interesting in this study, like the kind of blew my mind but if they measured a more junior monk to have beta waves while he reached his conclusion or answer about the koan that he'd been given the master at the other end never accepted the answer which i thought was fascinating if they even thought to do a study on that which is awesome i i'm thinking there, there must be a ton of literature in Japan that we will just never see because no one knows about it and no one's going to translate it. But um, some yeah, of the I science, there's like, a, there's sorry, a, there's yeah. a massive um, potential of, of people mapping together the subjective states, the reports from the person's subjective states, along with the physiological objective um, measurement stuff. Yeah. And yeah. you'll be able to come up with new product, you know, look at the measurements, look at the objective um, data stuff and come up with new practices based on that and test them and see what works. And then, um, and then in vice versa as well. And uh, that way of looking at both things at the same time, subjective and objective at the same time, yeah. uh, you'd be able to speed up awakenings and stuff that way. Yeah. Yeah. It. And it was, it was interesting that the Koan students were stressed and I, and I thought about it. I thought about the fact that they think it's a, a direct path. And I wonder if inducing that stress response does speed things up in terms of having having awakening experiences. So it's it's put me on a a bit of a um, a bit well, of an if you odyssey. Think about an aha experience, and mm. um, if you're trying puzzles, if you're trying just in the normal sense, if you're trying to solve a problem and you're really you have an aha moment when you figure it out, say it's like a I don't know, some like it's just a normal puzzle or whatever. And um or a scientific idea or whatever. You you don't just sometimes you just have an aha moment of an idea, but usually you've spent a long time struggling and stressing over it before. And like you say, you don't like while you're stressing try to figure it out and you're straining and you know you're physically straining, your your face is all screwed up, you're trying to figure it out and you can't, and then you're like, oh fuck it, I, I give up. And then boom, aha moment in the shower or whatever, you know, the classic mm. that people talk about. Well, you, the aha, if you liken the aha moment, you know, as an analogy to the awakening moment, which is a kind of aha in a way, um, it comes after the stress and the tension. 
you know, it's not like you get perfectly calm. Uh, you know, like people, if it was, if it was just, if you just got gradually more and more relaxed and more and more calm, feeling more and more good, hmm. and then that was the path to being awakened in any way, you everybody would already be it. It would happen by itself. They wouldn't need to. You wouldn't need to. There wouldn't be any of this. Any of these practices. Mm. Uh, it's because you need a you need a technique and and a, um, advice from someone who's been through it to tell you no. This stressful, horrible stuff you're having on the way is is normal. Mm. Uh, and then helping you not get caught up in it. But yeah. there are different practices. Will have a different amount of stress. You know, the, the, some of them make way way too much trouble of all this stuff. And it's, they don't need as much much trouble. Yeah, I don't think. And um, but some people need that. Some people are looking for the drama. Any any examples of high stress ones you were uh, referring to? Well, I mean, I've heard of, of in uh, many of the Buddhist guys talk about this. The um, Vipassana ones talk about how they have the you know the dark night of the soul. <laughs> mm. You know, like they go through a phase. They have a sort of um, glimpse, I suppose. They don't use that word, but they have a kind of glimpse. Stream. And then stream the, the person just goes on a downer, dark yeah. night of the soul, which is like a Christian mystic term. But they were they were using it in the context of it's Western Buddhist guys. Right. And um uh and then you have to work through that to get to the other side. And a lot of people get stuck in that. A lot of people who took drugs and, and stuff like that uh are just stuck in that forever. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a person whose life just falls apart and they're just like they're kind of mystical, but they're getting depressed and they just um, can't function properly, but they, they don't really have the real awakening. Um, so, uh, yes. So those guys see that as part of a site, the cycle you have to go through is you have to go through, there is that, that, that um, stage mm. that you would have to go through. Um, right. Other people say you don't, but you kind of do, even of the ones that are more, the practices that are more kind of ecstatic love based ones. They have that, the, the, those um, um states of ecstatic love and that they're they're not separated from pain and um negative emotions it's all wrapped up in there you know mm. it's not like pure perfect nice emotion it's all they're kind of transforming the 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 higher and the lower emotions at the same time yeah um so i think a lot of i mean if you're measuring those guys you know if you start if you <laughs> Strapped up some of these gadgets to like mm. the monk in the cell, you know, the Christian monk in the cell, whipping his back with the <laughs> the knotted ropes or whatever it is. Mm. Um, you'd probably, you know, there'd be interesting things you'd find out. That would be absolutely fascinating. If anyone knows someone like that, please get in contact with me because I, I want to run experiments on them. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Um, it sounds like an interesting ad to put in the oh, back yeah. of the newspaper. <laughs> yeah. Looking for a man who's... No, don't. Looking for masochist. Yeah. So when you were talking about alpha alpha waves and beta waves, you're not yeah. talking about surfing, no? No, no, not at all. Alpha not waves all. is not surfers. Okay. Although, although you know, um, all the same uh, physics apply to it. Amplitude, wavelength, um, you know, everything. True. It's all the same. Fractals. Yeah. Yes. Waves yeah, yeah. within waves yeah. within waves. <laughs> exactly. Um, just on those guys at the dark, dark night of the soul, you know, th there are a lot of stories in Zen about that as well, right? Like people losing their shit. Um, I, I think that neurotics are, are naturally attracted to this kind of stuff. We were talking about this last week, right? Like people who are in pain and a little bit crazy 
and maybe don't do all that well in normal day-to-day life uh, are attracted to this kind of stuff because it, it offers them probably several things. It, it offers them a chance to be distinguished or special in some way that the people around them are not. Um, it offers them the promise and the hope of a cure for their neurotic self or the neurotic tendencies and self-hatreds. Um, but, uh, you know, it doesn't, I think we, as we've seen, you could have an awakening experience, but all that stuff will still be there boiling away underneath. I have no doubt about it. And I honestly feel that there, there are some elements of this work that I think are useful, probably in a therapeutic con- uh, construct. But I, I do think at the end of the day, Zen itself is still a spiritual path and it's probably not best for people like like any spiritual path, people who are just generally unhappy with life. And I again, I always reiterate, because I went through this myself, I'm not like some guy standing up there going, oh, you know, like uh, you're all fucked and I'm amazing, so don't, don't even try. I just think people could get a lot more out of just sorting themselves out first and then doing the spiritual stuff afterwards <laughs> because you you will just confuse yourself and it will just make things worse and that's not what it's designed for having said that having said that there are parts of zen and i just wrote an article on this um last week in quite a bit of detail there are elements of the religion not the complete religion itself, but there are elements of the religion that can help people get themselves back on track, at least from a physiological standpoint. I don't know if the koan practice is particularly appropriate for that, to be honest. I think that kind of thing is probably best for someone that's already done a bit of work and is okay with themselves and isn't fucking crazy as a shithouse rat. Um, Because, you know, what's the point of having a waking experience if you can't can't feed yourself, you can't hold a job, and your parents hate you. What's the point? Um, so, what I was um, referring to in that article was, in, in some ways, uh, was first of all the breathing, which is a huge part of zazen. Um, but we know now why it's a huge part. We know the power of breathing to control the sympathetic. Well, sorry, the, the autonomic nervous system and how it all fits together and works. We understand how the breath regulates cerebral fluid, even heart rate, heart rate variability, uh, the amount of blood flow through the tissue. Now, the breathing itself is not of Zen, even though they conceptualized it in Zen and brought it perhaps to its most sophisticated state that I've seen in the Zen tradition. But this is one example of something that you can pull away from people who have been perfecting something for many thousands of years and actually use it within a health context. So someone who is a nutcase, and I've seen it work a couple of times, by the way, you give them this type of breathing work um, and just let them go away and practice that without any of the the cosmic foo-foo and the fucking love and all this sort of shit that 
could be in different traditions that are, you know, it just confuses things. Just give them the physical practice, just go and breathe like this, do these sorts of uh, body work exercises before you do it. Try to foster this, do it 20 minutes a day, go away, fuck off, come back in a month. That's one example of how a practice within a tradition can be reappropriated for a therapeutic outcome. In a, in, a, in a similar way, the posture element can absolutely be uh, appropriated for that. And it doesn't even need to be combined with meditation, I don't think. Maybe meditation could get a bit woo-woo and a bit difficult for some people, but they could take away the posture and the breathing. They could work on their center of gravity and their posture as if it was almost a physical exercise. Combine that with breathing Bob's your uncle. That would do. That would work wonders for a lot of people, in my opinion. In terms of the, so so if you were a more mature practitioner, um, and you weren't insane, <laughs> uh, or you you know at least you're not that insane. You have some idea of how insane you are, which is always probably a good sign. Um, then then I think that some of these practices, like koan practice, if you can meditate. There is no reason why you couldn't take away a koan, a traditional koan, like what is the color of wind or kill the Buddha when you see him or any of the other ones, mu, and just use them. Just use them in a meditation session. There's no reason why you can't do it, in my opinion. And there's no reason why... Something interesting you said earlier about the origin of some of the koans. So this is like... um, Yeah. Thinking about this. So if they... They came up with a koan, of some of the koans, or many of them, or whatever, were created by someone who just had an awakening experience. So the koan yeah. is kind of the effect or result of the awakening experience. Yeah. But then it's been used for other people as the cause of their future awakening. So mm. it's like, mm. it's how, so that's like a different path. So half of me immediately thought well how would that work because that's coming after the awakening experience they're just describing something how can that be the technique to cause it half of me saying that another half is like well if it's our genuine one then they're it's pointing to something that they're seeing then maybe that then in some kind of deeper intuitive level is useful for anyone or other or some other people or um it's kind of built into it is a kind of um, pass on the awakening mm. to the next person kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you can be more mystical about that or just matter of fact, it's just like it's built into that. So yeah. it's interesting to me to think how would that work or is that how it works? Uh, I mean, I don't know enough about it. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that is how it works. So if you read the uh, stories or if you read the statements that they, they don't make any, like they, <clears throat> pardon me the statements they make or the stories about the people who are awakened don't make any sense, but they do make sense in the way that I've been describing. So in the way that that they're a pointer, they're pointing to something. And as you say, the person who was in that state, who was awakened or had an awakening experience is explaining in a nonsensical way, what that state of consciousness is like, because it's probably the only way you can describe it. Um, and then that, that, that is a utility. So they collect these statements and they're not all, um, like that, but many of them are, 
And yeah, students use them because they're very effective. Um, maybe the master was very poetic and good with words. Um, and clearly when you read some of them, that's the case. Quite humorous. They're all, like Some of them are very humorous. Um, so yeah, I think it's, you know, and this is, I guess, a tradition, isn't it? That's what a tradition is. Should so be. it gives the person, so the person becomes awake and that, say it's a monk and he's in, you know, he's like in the monastery and he, that's his lifestyle. So he's, he's, so like I have this idea, my, my take on the whole thing is that enlightenment practices, techniques of awakening, however you want to describe it, is path dependent. So like method, methods aren't equal. Hmm. I used to think that you, you just do anything and then when you wake up, that's it. It's just separate thing but i don't think that's true because i mean i mean you live in the context of your life and how you express your awakening is going to be different based on the things you did before because that's the person you are now you know what did you what life did you wake up to uh if you put it like that um so because it seems to me it's path dependent if you live the life in a monastery around other people and you're all there explicitly trying to wake up then you've kind of trained your brain and your normal self to then at the moment of awakening your, you know, intuition or the bigger mind or whatever you call it is mm. going to take over and uh, create something that's useful for the other people as well, because you're in this social situation. So rather than it just being, Oh, I'm the master. Now I'll go off and do my own thing. You're like, it's immediately transferred into or immediately create some, a create a koan for the next guy. Uh, because that's what you you're all there for. So there's a kind of social aspect to it, hmm. which is going to be different from sitting in a cave and just doing it that way on completely on your own, yeah, um, yeah. without the interaction. And the other thing is you were saying about how they speak to the master after they've had the experience and they try and reason out and explain the koan yeah, I'm after. Not, so this is a part I'm not, not clear on. Just quickly on that, I'm okay. not sure, sure what the conversation is like. So I would imagine that they're not reasoning it out. He just needs to give a sufficient answer for the master to be convinced. I have no idea what form that would take, by the way. I don't know. I got no idea how you would do that, but I'm not sure it's reasoned out. Put it that way. Just just on that point. Okay. But yeah. you bit being articulated in words in some form though. Yeah. So yeah. it might not be like, it's not a cause and effect description. It's more like it, it, it's been articulated in words in such a way that the master knows that, you would only say that if you'd had the experience or you now have sure. that level of awareness or however you describe yeah, yeah, it. Sure. Um, so, I mean, that, that process is similar to like if Einstein's scientific process, you know, his thing was he had the, it was kind of like thought experiments and he had the intuition or the insight, the kind of like a vision of what was happening. And then he unpacked the proof of Then he came up with the proof of it later. So like he didn't just sit there with the equations and figure it out that way. It was like an insight and then wor work out the details after to prove the point. And I've heard mathematicians saying this also. Yeah. So they're starting from the aha moment. The insight is nonverbal or beyond words. And then they use words later to kind of um, articulate it to other people. Mm. Uh, it was all kind of implicit or uh, it was like inside the insight somehow, but it needs you, you need to use words to get it out to, to unfold it all it was already there. But you can't use the what you can't figure your way out to it. You have to have the insight. Hmm. Um, 
Mm. You don't do it, kind of happens to you, but you can do things that create the conditions for the insight to happen to you. Yeah. So it seems to be this thing is, is that just, it seems to be just a natural process. Yeah. The way the humans work. Uh, also the way civilizations work, actually, you know, they start with the big insights and the culture and the artistic and religious stuff. And then later it kind of congeals and becomes fed into a very intellectual craft. And, you know, the, the life is kind of, squeezed out of it it's kind of just unfolding and unpacking the ideas that were in that culture's artistic explosion at the start yeah um seems just like a natural process mm. yeah yeah and um, also go like we're talking about right that mm, mm-hmm. orgasm process that he talks about mm. <laughs> yeah yeah and, all, okay maybe yeah, he was right he was right charge, after all <laughs> discharge <laughs> It's the same thing, same yeah. cycle. Yeah, but you know, it's funny. Zen itself is is like that. Um, uh, you know, in in Japan, um, the the tradition itself is 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 become quite fibrotic and um, and and solidified. I guess quite more hinged on the just acting out the traditional elements. I I believe I'm told. Um, I, I have spent a bit of time in a monastery in Kyoto for uh, not that long. It was only for, uh, I think, five days in the end because it actually snowed so hard we had to evacuate or something. But <laughs> it's quite a pretty interesting story. But it, it um, I must say that I didn't really feel like I'm like, wow, like this is, this is Zen. You know, this is, <laughs> this is that Zen. And it may have just been where I was. Um, but yeah, so, so it actually, a lot of the Japanese masters, um, uh, last century when they, when they brought it over here, it was with the knowledge that Zen itself had, had, uh, become fibrotic and stultified, uh, et cetera. And they they were essentially looking for, for the fertile, uh, soil of the West to plant these seeds. And I actually was, was speaking to a, a, a student, well, a serious student. I think she was going to be a master at some point or something, but she'd been doing it for a long time. And she uh, was quite a serious uh, student. She was, you know, she'd done a lot of work, spent a lot of time studying various stuff. And she said that actually the, the Zen in the West, you know, and I always talk about how a lot of it is pretty fallen, um, particularly these days, but at least you know, back in the 60s and 70s, as, as much as that era gets a hard time, you know, a lot of those Zen lineages really did get reinvigorated um, a lot. And I still think there's this hope for Zen in the West. Once we just get this, get over this little weird blip of uh, whatever the fuck it's meant to be, all this weird identity stuff. Um, but, you know, there is some more interesting stuff being done here with it like even outside of the political correctness and all this kind of uh, political stuff, there are certain schools and lineages that are trying out new things that are trying to combine Koan and Zazen without, um, without any, you know, uh, demarcation, like, Oh, we're this school and you're, you're that school. Like people are trying things out, trying different practices, 
I've even seen people integrate yoga into into classes, which I'm not not against at all. Um, so people in the West are experimenting with this this whole thing. Um, you know, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. And it's just interesting you talk about the life cycle of processes because it kind of is happening with this tradition as well. So it became non-functional in Japan and now it's come over here and yeah, sure, it's having some pretty serious hiccups. But nonetheless, there are people who are trying to do different things with it and even integrating it with, you know, psychotherapeutic literature or whatever it is in their own way agree with it or disagree with it uh, people are doing things with it um so you know it's interesting yeah there clearly is a life cycle for these different traditions and of course before that um you know zen came from um the subcontinent into china spent like you know many many centuries in china which is where it, it got a lot of its characteristics and then, of course, I think it was after the Tang Dynasty, it you know it moved to Japan and it became prominent in Japan. So it's interesting how the Dharma itself has has come full circle and has had its own life cycle within these different countries, where it took on different features in each place, uh, a different kind of character. And I think coming to the West. Um, I, I do find it somewhat inspiring because, again, I put this in the article that I wrote last week, but there is no reason why the, the essence of the tradition itself uh, can't be maintained whilst we work in our own, you know, vital elements into it, I suppose. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of excited to see what could potentially happen. Um, it may not. We may just all end, end up a bunch of rat commies and nothing good will happen and it'll just be all Black Lives Matter and everyone will forget about no self. <laughs> it'll all just be about, about my identity rather than trying to see through my identity, which I will never understand. I will never understand why you would latch on to Buddhism if you're one of these people. Yeah, so oh, guys you know? like yeah. us then are in this view doing... Uh, re not reinterpreting, but using Zen and practices in your own way and, and and stuff is kind of is part of that process of it being a lie. You know, you're it's doing what they wanted it to do. It's yeah, it's not exactly. um, appropriating it or or bastardizing it or anything. It's actually this is just how it works. This is how it got to Japan in the first place. Yeah, people forget this. Yeah. It didn't just it didn't start there. It came a long way to get to Japan, and it completely transformed based on uh the other cultural stuff that was in and ideas in china and stuff on the way hmm. so it's not like you know the, these things aren't just separate from other things and uh there is western methods that that uh are useful that can be attached to these things it's absolutely or, yeah. It can be processed through, through these things, which is what we were talking about last week. Hmm. I mean, there's a lot like what we're saying, that there's there's things you can use technologies to measure this stuff. As long as you're doing it with the right mindset of the measurements and the technologies are the middle stage of a process, not the end in itself, yeah. uh, then you could use those things to develop practices or to figure out what's working or hmm. what's the best ways and stuff. I mean, I a lot of those older guys, so like if you take the Zen guys, they would have killed for knowing for definite which 
thing works far better than other things. Or yeah. if you could yeah. somehow measure students, go, he's this type of guy. This he has this type of brain. These things are better on for this guy. Obviously, a lot of those the masters are running on intuition and experience. Hmm. What someone needs at a certain time, because you were saying they give different cones to different people at different times. So it's more like rather than so the cones not like more information. You're not being taught a bunch of information that you have to remember. It's more like the master is prescribing a practice for that person right now because he knows where he knows what he needs. Um, so the discovering what the person needs is something that Western methods are actually useful for for finding out in in, a, in an extra way. Not. Obviously, every person is still left with their opinions and thoughts on things, but your relationship to all that stuff will be totally different because it's not as react as reactive anymore. Yeah, you're not just react. Yeah, so many people have flipped their politics one way or the other over their life. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, propensity to flip like that is you know you're just attaching yourself to one set word structure to another word structure essentially that's what it is yeah it makes you have the same feelings but it's a different word structure now yeah. um that that thing will go away when you're doing these practices you don't do that anymore so there'll be more kind of <laughs> there'll be it's not that your opinions will be better it's just you know, a lot of the crap lots of the crap will go away uh but people will still disagree on stuff and um yeah. they you know, these things can be used in opposite directions, you know, like some people are using the Buddhist stuff for, you know, the extreme progressive stuff now. And uh, back in the day, the uh, samurais are using Zen for mm. getting better at killing people and, you know, <laughs> not being scared and, and whatever. So it's like you can use these things in different ways. It's, not, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. it's like you're just, you're part, you're getting trapped in part of the problem if you're trying to make it all work 
if you're trying to make it all fit and make sense and come some kind of ideology, whatever the ideology is, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, when, you know, like, it's, you know, it's, there's something to be said for the idea of, you know, taking on uh, sets of beliefs uh, as best you can in order to use practices and then dropping them and moving on when you got what you wanted or it doesn't go anywhere. That's um, uh, there are problems with yeah. doing it that way too, but yeah. you, you know, it's like seems to be something that you can do now, and you have access to all these things, uh, and it's just pure fantasy to imagine that all the old guys in the old days would not take advantage of all these options that you have now. Mm, that they would fantasy. try and keep it the strict way forever. Yeah, there's a personality type that does that, obviously, but <laughs> in general, yeah. they would jump at these things and. All of these ancient traditions. Well, for, first of all, most almost all of them are a um, synthesis of older practices. Anyway, they're not like mm. some pure thing that appeared out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, everything's in its own context, and uh, like those guys were a lot of them are always seeking the other guys who know stuff. This yeah. is what they did. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, and that's just we've got access to it now. So it's just a case of for us now, it's more. Uh, limiting the downsides of it and the traps of it you know thinking you can just jump from thing to thing without going in and learning anything in depth and um, thinking technology is the end point and getting obsessed over the data rather than using it as a tool yeah um it's just, just the usual western problems yeah, but they're, yeah. they're all those other traditions have their other version of these problems yeah um you know like the indian tradition is like uh, no really concept of history, so nothing's really. There's not really a lot of. There's no concept of history as a direct line in the same way that Westerners mm. do. So there's a lot of stuff that's just you don't have access to now, and or it's all mixed together, different people writing at different times. So it's not like, it's, you know, it's not helpful in some ways. <laughs> some of some of it's not helpful because of the way that they thought about things. In the same way as the way we think about things now is not helpful for mm. other people in in future or or other places now. Mm. Um, it's just, uh, you know, different ways of doing things. And, um, it's just a type of LARPing to think that you're either going to be like you say, the guy in, in living in the forest, pretend you're like some kind of pure version of a thing. It's just LARPing. Yeah. Uh, and also thinking that you're some kind of abstract master who can just pick and mix anything and not have to, uh, learn things and do things that don't fully make sense while you're doing them uh, is also a type of um, LARPing as a uh, thinking you're some kind of master um, when it's really a mix of the both and it always has been a mix of the both. Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah, but, you know, the the technology thing is interesting because, yeah, again, it shouldn't be an endpoint. We're not talking about the Andrew Huberman science thing. it's more just you know it's a tool and it's a tool that can shave a lot of fucking about off uh off your practices whatever they are yeah that guy used, yeah. the huberman guy you just mentioned yeah he's he's useful as a as like guys like him and tim ferris those type of guys were they're useful because you can see the end point of that way of looking at things they just mm. hit a wall and they can't go any further yeah <laughs> they're like it's like it's it's they're like peak brow. Yeah. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's like they can't go any farther. They can't. They don't have. Yeah. Any, like, I am. They I am like uh, they, yeah. 
Sorry, go on. But they're ex yeah. ultra successful and the best you can be at with that kind of starting framework or um, feeling, mental feeling of the world. And um, it's, uh, you know, they're the type of guys that like everything they touch, you know, meditation, whenever they talk about things, they always <laughs> destroy it a bit or limit it a bit. Uh, but, you know, they're they're the opposite of the type of ones who are just completely woo-woo out there and have no kind of... They're not, they've no kind of rigor at all when they look at stuff. Hmm. So you have to kind of, it's, again, it's maybe there's just only a few, it's only a limited amount of people who kind of are able to think in both ways at yeah. once. Yeah, I think people so. go down one or down the other. So anyway, I find those guys useful in that sense as a kind of, uh, a good barometer of where the culture's going totally. because, you know, they're all getting into all these things that are, like a weird Silicon Valley bro take on, on all of these spiritual stuff. Uh, and to me, that shows the things to be avoided in some ways, although yeah. they have useful ideas and techniques sometimes for definite. And um, it's not that it's, it's not this bad. It's just that it's not complete. They're, they're, they're again, it's like the left hemisphere, right hemisphere thing. They're, left hemisphere uh, extremists hmm. yeah I, I always describe them as uh as um the sorry op optimization machines that plug into the the capitalism matrix because that's really i i can't listen to tim tim ferris anymore because it's just like everything that it is so, it's sort of like i'm i'm this machine um i'm gonna do ayahuasca to try and you know, defrag de the machine database, and then I'm going to go and plug into, you know, the startup culture and try to maximize how much money I, you know, it's just that kind of, it's, it's a very mechanical uh, machine-like existence. Everything is like, oh, I'm this, I'm this machine that needs to be optimized. So I need to go out and get the sun fuel in the morning. And then I need to do all these different things and I need to not drink alcohol because that'll ruin the mainframe. And like, I just get the, get the uh, feeling that it's all extremely mechanistic and the ultimate. Oh yeah. To these two guys, the sun is a giant vitamin D dispenser. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. exactly. And That's... you go out and you get your supplements. Yeah. You know, yeah. Are they, I know they wouldn't, they would <laughs> laugh and dispute that, but that yeah. is kind of what they, how they view these things, you know, and like, um, yeah, the thing, the anti-drinking thing. Well, <laughs> Vitamin D dispenser. Okay, That's literally good. it's poison. Okay, cool. Everyone knows this. It's not yeah. like good for you like that. Yeah. Um, but you benefit, you, you know, as long as you're not like, you know, the, the, something like alcohol, you, you have to put it in context. You're not just in one state forever and then you add, well, obviously choice, add poison or don't add poison. Well, don't add poison, obviously, but that isn't <laughs> yeah. what it is. You, of it in a situation, a social situation, and it could improve somebody's life because they just had one and they're in this situation and, and it actually makes them healthier overall because of all the factors taken mm. into account with the little bit of poison, if you're going to be literal about it. So like just that as an example, is like uh, they just take things out of context. Again, it's the left hemisphere type of thing yeah. that Miguel Chris talks yeah. about. It's uh, pull things from context and, and um, just staring at the tiny little parts. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then try to optimize those parts, yeah. how the parts fit together. And um, it's like a whole way of viewing the world that you can't engage with those people because they can't they can't get out of it. They're inside mm. their own system. They're they need the cones. <laughs>
it's because you have some kind of be- there's some kind of benefit to you yeah. in some way either it makes you feel good or it avoids you feeling bad that's what it yeah. boils down to yeah um and it's just a way strong opinions so he, to he's, do that. So we're on Twitter. What someone would do is just immediately react to the strong opinion. Yeah. Um, whereas we're not going to start analyzing and looking at the reactions to it. So that's the case. That's, that's the point with the with that book. Yeah. Sure. So he, here's an example. Um, just one question. Uh, I'm going to pick out here. Um, the word "I" refers more to a hope than a reality. Um, and then he gives you a scale of one to five one being weak, five being a strong. So uh, that's how you gauge your reaction. And then presumably what you do is you add up a score, yeah? And that you have like a, a collective score over a number of questions or is it just comparing each iteration? I think it's just iteration? you compare, you compare yeah. the ones, yeah. You just work with ones that have strong, strong, a very high or very low. And then you work with ones that have changed over time. You come sure. back and do a week later and see which ones have changed. So what's been happening in your kind of... yeah emotional process and that makes you now you're not really at all to that statement hmm. is it just because you've read it before or is it because that aren't important to you at the moment yeah you know in you've a over, way you've overcame um, those reactions sure so it's about self-overcoming it's a technique of self-overcoming yeah Hyatt is obviously a, he's quite a big nietzschean yeah uh and hyatt's books are full of techniques yeah yeah he constantly uh, references nietzsche yeah. Yeah. You know, um, just on that, I've just, just had a bit of a, a brainwave. Um, so I'm thinking that, uh, I, I, I think I just lost it. <laughs> it's unfortunate. So I, I was thinking that you, you, uh, have this process, how you're undergoing a weekly or monthly or whatever it is you're going through and you're taking data and you're taking data of a momentary or relatively momentary response to a set of questions and you're deriving uh, a picture of your character that's not immediately obvious to you, which is what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago with the Reich work. So this is probably a way of uncovering elements of yourself that are not uh, available to you within conscious purview uh, easily. And then, uh, you know, the next week or the week, the next month, uh, you do it again and you put the two things together and you notice that everything is different. I would imagine everything is different or a lot of things are different. Um, maybe some things are the same, but it wouldn't be the same picture, would it? I haven't done this actually, but did you notice I've differences? Done it and yeah, I had quite a few had completely different ones. So often yeah. ones yeah. had a strong reaction, then they had no reaction um and uh it's it just goes to show that the amount of effort and energy people waste on things like reacting to things on twitter when you really just would have a different a week later you would have a completely different reaction to that thing sure and you wouldn't bother sure you would start seeing this oh, okay this you would you even notice patterns you've kind of emotionally your emotions are working different in different weather yeah uh you know like uh moon the phase of the moon actually makes a difference hmm. uh you know like full moons do are slightly different for whatever reason doesn't matter um I, I have noticed that i'm interested in things differently that kind of correlates to the phase of the moon without yeah. me thinking about uh, i just noticed this when i was mapping things down um how it's you know like 
practice when you're doing these exercises you should be aware if it's uh, an important yeah, yeah. day if there's a meaningful day and stuff because you'll interpret and all these people of certain his students and in his books he's teaching like body work mm. techniques as well along with this so he's expecting people to be changing on physiological levels as they're doing this yeah yeah so you're kind of so by using the words so like we started with the koan stuff you're there are problems associated with how you use words and you're reacting to words and you're not free of the words. But the method for doing that isn't to, isn't to high, run away from words and it's also not to just go round and round in circles doing psychology, sitting on a mat, doing psychology in your own head like a lot of people do at the uh, retreats and things. Hmm. Um, it's to use words to overcome the words. So you're yeah. using his set of words to start looking at your reactions and then to unfold your character like you were saying, and you wouldn't have seen it directly. Uh, and then your relationship to words will change over time with doing this. So you yeah. kind of use words to transcend words. And, you, and your relationship to your character becomes different as well because you're conceptualizing Changing, yeah. it. Conceptualizing and it efficiently you're just doing and scientifically. This all the time. When someone yeah. says something controversial or you react, you're, you're in your head, you're quickly going, oh, that's it. Yeah. Now that's already on a practical level. Now you've that stopped you from saying something reactive to that person or, or tweeting or whatever, yeah. because you're now like, oh, so you're now like tweeting like, uh, as something to study yeah. other than um, just being, being a robot. So yeah. your life will get better just for that alone. And then you can re decide to respond to the person in whatever way you think mm. is appropriate. Maybe they do need something said back to them. Mm. It's kind of aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> they might do. Um, yeah, you usually it's, uh, you're not choosing to do that. It's just happening. Yeah, you could be mindfully aggressive. I think that's absolutely possible. Um, so, so Sometimes the other, the other, yeah, <laughs> the, the other interesting part, just to complete this uh, thought of similarity, uh, I think, is when when you notice that you're marking things a little bit differently, uh, or or a lot differently, and maybe the whole thing is dependent on all these uh, factors out, you know, quote unquote, outside of yourself. Um, and all these different things that are happening in your life. And that then means that your subjective uh, self-assessment is completely different to a week ago. Uh, to me, this kind of sounds like, and I know Hyatt did think this, but he thought that the autobiographical self, which is a self I always talk, talk shit about, uh, about how it needs to be uh, powered down or, or put into its proper context. And, in the Buddhist tradition, that's obviously a big thing, right? The doctrine of no self, uh, anatta, um, part of or one of the big awakening experience is always associated with seeing through the uh, the self as a stable autobiographical uh, continuity. So, so this state of mind where we go through life and we think of ourselves now, we think of ourselves before as the same entity. Um, part of the Zen awakening experience, the way that people describe it is you see through that as, as an illusion. And this is a way that you have the awakening experience and then presumably energy then becomes available to you because you've, you've untied that knot basically um, because you see through it. Uh, they say that, well, the truth is that it was never there. Um, and, and koan practice, of course, is designed to induce this awakening in its own way and I, I can see a link in a way to this because you're using this language to show yourself that you're not the same entity 
moment momentarily. You're constantly in a state of change depending on how you interact with your environment or the people around you and all these different things. So there is no real difference between you and the environment. It's this continuum of experience and it's what you are is not really a self like you think you are. You are a continuum or interaction, a seamless interaction with the world around you. And that in is, is really essentially the same realization that you have with a koan. Uh, maybe it's a slightly different, more scientific way of working it out. But I, I can see that the end point is actually very similar. I think it's kind of the same thing. It's the same realization. You're getting the same data from yeah. doing this. Uh, you know, it's, it's like just slightly less mystical. The self uh, that you're talking about, you know, the, the false idea of this of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's constructed by, in a lot of ways, it's constructed by the words in your head and the yeah. stories you've told yourself and, and those things. Um, you're like, you've made it. So, like, you're, it makes sense that there would be a way of using the words. You could use words in another way to undo that um, or to overcome it. Mm. Absolutely. Again, it's just using words as. Yeah. To help them. They, they, they didn't eat the stuff, you know, they sharpened a piece of rock until it was sharp or found one that was it, tied it to the end of a stick. Spear. They didn't do that to eat the spear. Mm. You know, it was a tool, it was just a tool for getting what they wanted, mm. hunting or whatever, mm. or, you know, <laughs> find someone. Yeah. But the, so words is the same idea. It's not like, um, it, it's, it's, Objectively, it's not like you true. can't yeah. just use them as a tool. Yeah. Um, again, it's just techniques, practices. Yeah, and particularly um, now you're a Donald Hoffman aficionado. Um, it's extra, extra the case that that's the case. <laughs> if, if there was any doubt, <laughs> yeah. that's uh, that book's gonna, you know, really drive that home. Yeah, I'm a Hoffman yeah. bro, but I have to admit. Uh, I'm actually partly through watching a video of him being interviewed by, guess who, Tim Ferriss. <laughs>